We're revisiting a topic this morning which is uh, rarely talked about in church, but a couple years ago I preached a sermon series on the Christian view of work and vocation. I'd like to go back today to that. uh, On that topic, it's very applicable here from Genesis chapter 2, the Garden of Eden. Uh, And the fact is we work a lot. Over five decades, we will work over 100,000 hours of our lives will be spent in our jobs. Yeah, you can probably count on one hand the number of sermons you have heard on that topic. So Genesis 2, what does the garden have to say about that part of our life we spend the most time on? This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man that he formed. I've, I forgot to say this, but the Hebrew word for, for man, human, is, is Adam. And the Hebrew word for soil or ground is Adamah. So all throughout here, the beginning of chapter 2, you have that pun working. The picture is that we are from the ground, and then we know uh, we, we return to the ground after we die. The, uh, the Lord had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and he put the, the Adam he had formed there, verse 9. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon, It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. We don't know the precise location of the Pishon or the Gihon, but the rest of these names that you have in verses 10 through 14 would have been familiar locations to the Israelites, the Cush, the Tigris, the Euphrates. I think it's worth noting that a lot of Christians believe Noah's flood, which will occur later in chapter 9, resulted in a cataclysmic reshaping of the earth's surface. And, and that is what's used to explain why in the middle of the Grand Canyon you'll find marine fossils, or why you'll find you know, thousands and thousands of layers of sedimentary rock spread over the earth. The, the topography of the earth's surface, they say, was dramatically changed after the flood uh, rather than before. But, but if you see here, the Israelites were familiar with these same top, topographical features of the ground uh, in their day, then uh, prior to, to the flood there in Eden. So it, it calls into question the level of cataclysm that took place. Eden 
from what we know of the Tigris and the Euphrates, is most likely in some place in Iraq. And we certainly know where that's located, although there are, are no archaeological evidences of it still today. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The most famous of the creation myths of the ancient world is certainly the Enuma Elish of the Babylonians. In the Enuma Elish, we find out that the world was the outcome of a great battle between the gods from which Marduk, the chief god of the Babylonian pantheon, emerged victorious. And as a monument to his victory, he took the rival vanquished god Tiamat, he sliced her into two, and he used her dismembered corpse, the top of which became the heavens and the bottom of which became the earth. Enuma Elish goes on. It says, who is to work the earth? The world is a very big place. Who is going to service the earth? And the answer that it gives is, eh, not the gods. The gods are, are destined for a life of constant leisure and rest. So Marduk decides to create a lowly primitive creature called man, and all of mankind is consequently here on earth, to work as the slaves of the gods. In the long history of human thought, this keeps popping up again and again. This idea that work is fundamentally bad. You see it in the Greeks and the Romans. Aristotle said the primary qualification for a genuinely worthwhile life is unemployment. (laughs) And in the... Greek, uh, Greece and Rome, I mean, the slaves were the ones who did all the work. You may remember the story of Pandora's box. Z- Zeus gives to Pandora. This box says, don't open it. She promptly turns around and does. All hell b- breaks loose. What comes out of Pandora's box? Death, decay, disease, and work. Um, work is bad. Gods don't do work. Work is beneath the gods. If you have to work, it's simply in order to enjoy leisure on which all happiness depends. Here we are several millennia later, and we still kind of think that way, don't we? Work is a, is a necessary evil. Work is a means to an ends. And that end in American society is always recreation. We, we are working for the weekends. What's the most popular times of American work week? It's Friday night, Saturday, and all day Sunday. Uh, or it's five o'clock. It's five o'clock every day. It's five o'clock somewhere. Um, because work is just something you've got to get through. You just, you've got to get through it. Well, here in Genesis chapter 2, the Bible's view of work is radically different Uh, Chapter 1 and chapter 2, the Bible describes the creation of the world in terms of a six-day work week, which means, of course, God is the first worker. As far as the Christian God is concerned, work is not beneath our God. He's the first worker. He takes the job 
voluntarily. It wasn't as though he had to go into the office on Monday morning, but nevertheless, for the sheer joy of work, he decided to go in and work for six days. Work is good. Work is uh, a very important part of what it means for us to be human beings. And what I'd like to cover this morning are several points. Number one, the nature of our work. Number two, the dignity of work. And then finally, a couple, a couple of practical issues related to work. First, what are we to understand about the nature of human work? If you recall from chapter 1, God's first work. What was God's first work? God's first work was to give form to things which were formless. And since, as I said last week, we are made in his image, we are his representatives to this world, we are kings and queens of the great king, uh, He is a creator. We are sub-creators. What I want to suggest to you is the very first work, the very first human work, is the same. We are to do the same. We are to give form to those things which are formless. Adam and Eve's first job, maybe, (laughs) was to take a piece of wood and form it into table and chairs. Maybe. It was to take something that was good, because all of the created world was good. Trees are good. Wood is good. But by applying human industry and artistry, mankind would take the already established goodness of the natural world and do what with it? We would make it better. So we see right off the bat... Adam and Eve are in the garden, and they're called to work the garden. They're they're not placed in the garden as park rangers. They're not there to preserve the pristine beauty of the place. I mean, park rangers, man, that's a a great job. I mean, all you have to do is just walk around and and make sure there's no fire, there's nothing. But no, they, they are supposed to work in the garden, in the paradise, and to unlock the latent potential of the physical world through their industry and artistry. What was God's second work? Well, back in chapter 1, verse 4, we read his second work was he separated things. He separated, if you recall, the light from the darkness. He separated the waters from above from the waters beneath. And I would suggest that was probably Adam and Eve's second work. Let's use grain for an example. First, you harvest the grain. What does it involve? What does harvesting the grain involve? It, it means separating it from the stalk. Then you thresh the grain. You throw the grain up into the air. And what does the air do? It separates the chaff from the germ. Then you grind the grain. Well, when you're grinding the grain, you're basically separating its cohesiveness. You're, you're breaking it down. And then we change the pattern a little bit. Then you combine the sep- these separated things with yeast and water and salt. And then you bake the combination. And there you have the same essential pattern. Grain, separate, combine, bake. And you take something that's good And make it a whole lot better. Bread is better. Grain is good. Bread is better. Especially sourdough. (laughs) 
Andy Crouch wrote a book entitled Culture Making, Recovering Our Creative Calling. And in the book, Crouch uses the example of grapes. He says, grapes are good. We spend countless hours tending grapes on a vine, then harvesting them. Then you put the grapes into a wine press. You crush the grapes underneath your feet. You place the grapes in a cask to release the sugars and feed the yeast. And when this whole process is overseen by a person with great skill and great discernment, then you get wine with its all of these layers of flavors and colors and aromas. Grapes are good, wine is very good, and the very best wine is glorious. For someone who has spent years developing their palate by swirling, swishing, spitting, uh, I mean, wine, a great wine, is one of the most amazing experiences of taste, smell, and, and sight. So there you have, again, the pattern of creation, and, and it's really the pattern of culture make, making, which is going from good to very good to glorious. We need to work. We're supposed to do a lot of work. Adam and Eve were employed to work all throughout their days in the garden. You know, work is one of those things that God intended us to have in a, a, a very high ratio. How many things in this world operate on a six-to-one ratio? If you were to drink six cans of Coke for every one glass of water, you're not going to be here for very long. Um, the work-rest ratio which God established is six-to-one. Now, we may wish it was one-to-six, but it's, it's not 50-50 even. Isn't that interesting? God didn't make it so that it was three and a half days on, three and a half days off. It was a six-day work week that he established. Now, by that, I don't mean you need to be in your job all six days. But it, it's six days worth of productivity that he established and was calling Adam and Eve to do the same. So what we're seeing here, big picture on the very first pages of the Bible, we discover, you and I, that we are hardwired for work. Work is in our spiritual DNA. When you talk to people in hospitals, and they're shut up in a hospital, or talk to someone who's in a nursing home, you ask them, what is their biggest regret? What they hate is the fact that they can't do anything productive anymore. It's the loss of productivity. If you're 65 and you still have a lot left in your tank, but the company forces you into early retirement, how do you feel about that? You, you struggle for weeks and months afterwards. Because when you're cut off from work, you discover just how much you need it. Similarly, if you talk to somebody who's gone away on a three or four week vacation, and they come back, how is your time? Very frequently, they'll say, it, it was too long. There is such a thing as having too much time on my hands, too much time away. We really need, we need work. And that's how God established it. So that's the nature and need of work. Secondly, what about the dignity of work? As I said earlier, the Greeks and Romans, as a general rule, believed that work was demeaning. That's why 40% of the Roman Empire were slaves. Think about that. Four out of every ten people you met in that world were slaves who did all of the labor. But they said, okay, if you have to work, 
then what you should do is pick a profession which utilizes your mind rather than your body. Because as far as the Greeks and Romans were concerned, cognitive work is considered far more noble than manual labor. They would say always give priority to knowledge jobs because knowledge jobs are far more dignified. Here's the question I'm going to ask you. Does God share that same assumption? Clearly not. Verse 8. We get this magnificent image in verse 8. It says that God planted the garden. So to plant a garden, you've got to get dirt literally underneath your fingers. He planted a garden. He tilled the soil. He mounds up the soil with his hands. It's... You get the picture of a potter with his clay, taking his hands and putting it in, and then he breathes his life into it. We see God uh, doing manual labor, of all things, at the very beginning of the Bible. And in the garden, we find all kinds of work is going on. Blue-collar farming, blue-collar construction, digging, um, white-collar philosophy, Theology, they walked with God, they talked with God. Uh, later on, we'll see biological taxonomy as they name the animals. Artistic work is part of the garden. One of the things, the very first thing Adam does is he writes a love poem, a song, which he sings over Eve. We'll look at it next week. He sings this over Eve on the day of their wedding. The point being, in the garden, no type of work is privileged over the others, which I dare say is not true in America today. We almost always tell our kids to go to college and not to tech school. We will tour 20 different colleges, but we won't be caught dead touring a school of cosmetology or a truck driver's school. Um, and I get it. Part of that is knowledge jobs usually have higher salaries than the, their alternative. But we're working off the assumption, always working off the assumption, that more salary equals a better life, aren't we? Does God share that assumption? I kind of doubt it. A lot of it, though, is us buying into our society's idea, idea of prestige. I mean, our society makes value judgments, pronouncements, based uh, over people based on their profession. For instance, let's say your daughter comes home and she says she's fallen in love with a neurosurgeon from San Diego. How does that compare to she's fallen in love with a foreman on an oil rig in South Dakota? Both jobs pay well. Both guys are from SD. But... But our society places value judgments such that manual labor and service industry jobs just don't come with the same status and prestige. Which job, which uh, potential husband do you feel more comfortable introducing to your friends and family? Or this, if you go back 20 years, or go back to your 20-year high school reunion, and somebody says, what do you do for a living? Are you embarrassed to tell them that you bus and wait on tables? or work on a landscape maintenance crew, or, or even stay at home as a mom. I mean, those jobs lack pizzazz. We may be embarrassed to admit it, but we shouldn't be. Not if our Savior came into the world as a carpenter, and in doing so, Jesus dignified all of work.
Christianity says something that no other religion in the world ever has said or ever will say. That at the beginning of the Bible, God has dirt underneath his fingernails. In the middle of the Bible, God is a minimum wage carpenter. And at the end of the Bible, God is kind of like a construction worker. He's building a city of of sorts. He has dignified all work. Do you really think there are any menial jobs in God's eyes? You may spend your days cleaning up food spills and baby poop, but the Lord is pleased with you and he's pleased with that work because there's a dignity and a value to all honest labor. I think I told you the story. A man and his wife were coming home from vacation and on the jetway, the wife, she just blacks out. So they rush her to a surgeon. It turns out she has a tumor at the base of her skull the size of a quarter, which caused the blackout. Well, a few years ago, they developed a technology called a gamma knife. Using a gamma knife, you can go in and cut out a tumor with like no collateral damage, and it's actually an outpatient surgery procedure. So she goes in, she has the gamma knife cut the tumor out. She's out in a day. And the husband is afterwards reflecting and marveling um, on all the different occupations which had to come together to facilitate his wife's healing. The construction worker who built the hospital, the real estate agent who provided the lease for the doctor's office, the engineer who designed the internal hardware for the gamma knife, the, the software which was created by some computer coder. He said afterwards, you know, it's the gamma knife guys and the surgeons who get all of the credit, but I'm so glad for, for each and every one of them. I'm glad for the HVAC specialists who designed the AC units that would make the room comfortable. I'm thankful for the janitorial staff who, if they didn't do their jobs, the whole, the whole office would shut down. When you step back and think about it, there are so many different jobs which go into every single facet of human life. You know, being a professional athlete or being a movie star, those are legitimate vocations, but actually the service rendered by LeBron James is considerably less significant than the service rendered by our local garbage uh, truck driver. The one is far more important for life than the other. The assembly line worker in Detroit, Michigan, he screws rivets into a car door, eight to five. That guy probably doesn't feel like his abilities are being used in creative and meaningful ways. But the fact is, we could not, we could not do this life without him. Work gets a whole lot harder in the next chapter of the book of Genesis because there, after the fall, there ends up being a curse on our work and a curse on labor pains. So in chapter 1, verse 28, it says, Be fruitful and multiply. And we're fruitful and mul- we, we are fruitful when we have babies, but also we're fruitful when we build families, when we build churches, build schools, when we develop the social world so that there's a support system for human beings to be the social creatures we were intended, 
All of that becomes very hard after the fall because human sinfulness makes all of our social activity very, very difficult. So God pronounces a curse upon childbirth, and that's really an indicative. The pain of childbirth is indicative of of the pain of all human social interactions uh, for the rest of, of life. So things are very different after the fall. Before the fall, it's easy to imagine Adam and Eve feeling satisfied in their jobs. They were probably very fulfilled by their work in the garden. After the fall, you remember the curse? It says that your work, your labor is now going to be plagued by thorns and thistles. In other words, not only is death now in the equation, but so too is economic scarcity. The, the, the garden paradise planet no longer yields all that it previously did. And so now we have to scratch and claw our way to maintain our existence. Um, So I'm not Pollyanna. I realize that the work on this side of the fall is, is far, is very different, but it's so incredibly important for you to see the way that God intended things to be. The nature of work the need for work, the dignity of all kinds of work. I want to finally close here with, uh, what if I hate my work? (laughs) Because I've talked to a a lot of people, a a number of you, you you hate your job. You feel stuck in your job. (laughs) You, You ended up choosing your job before you ever realized, I guess, the full ramifications of what that meant. And then it, uh, Mobility between jobs is is difficult. You feel stuck and you are stuck. So what do you do? John Erisman's brother, Al, when he came back through uh, Boise, well, the uh, first time I met Al was a couple of years ago. He gave me a book on this topic of Christian doctrine of vocation and work that included an interview with a prominent businessman. I can't remember exactly who it was, but uh, this interview, I thought, you could relate to it. He said, for about 10 years of my life, I thought that if I just got the right job, I would be happy. I was trying to derive meaning from my work. So for about a decade, I jumped from place to place, wondering what I should do for my career. In time, I came to realize that we don't derive meaning from our work. Rather, we bring, we bring meaning to our work. It's the perspective that we bring to our work, either a life-giving perspective or a life-draining perspective. He said, I read the story of two men who were working the Middle Ages. They were doing the same job, hauling rocks to a construction site. The first one said, I hate my job. All I do is move rocks all day, and it's difficult and hot, dirty work. And the other guy said, I love my job. I'm building a cathedral. That is a simplistic and even trite expression that is so true that with every job, we have the opportunity to have a life-giving or life-draining perspective towards it. Take a hospice worker, for example, like the one who took care of my mother-in-law, he says. I could describe that job as changing bedpans for a living for people who are going to die anyway, Or I could view that job as creating an environment of love for people in the last few precious months, weeks, and days of their lives. Almost all jobs can be done with similar results 
But if you have the right perspective, you're doing them for a new motive. If you hate your job, it's critical to see that vocation, the way that we as Americans have considered it, uh, we think we're just going to find meeting and we're going to find self-fulfillment in our jobs. But essentially, that's not what vocation is. Vocation is all about how do I love my neighbor? How do I serve society? How do I honor Christ? As Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 7, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward each of you for whatever good they do. Many people don't find their ideal job and they aren't in a place where their gifts and passions uh, all coalesce into something beneficial that they enjoy. But God is changing that. God is leading us back to the garden. Let me conclude with this. Um, that's the picture that the Bible gives. We go, fr- we front, we're, we start with the garden, we lose the garden, and then we go back to the garden. The work in the garden is what we all long for. We long to get back there. We were actually not longing to sit on a beach for all eternity. We're actually longing to do something productive that no longer comes with the crushing disappointment that a lot of our productivity in this life uh, suffers from. We have, we have longings for, for a job well done. The very thing that God does at the end of each of the days of creation. See, I, I, do you remember I said a few weeks ago how Augustine came up with this doctrine of instantaneous creation? Everything was created immediately. And I don't, I don't agree with Augustine at all on that. Um, what's incredible about the way God created is he does just a little bit each day. And at the end of the day, he's able to kind of lay his de- head on the pillow and say, man, that was good. It's good. So bit by bit, day after day, he gets this satisfaction of, man, it was good. And we get foretastes of that in our lives here. The satisfaction when you finish a project and it all comes together. Uh, the satisfaction, so this week, Erin and her parents ended up painting the downstairs of our house. Um, what, what do they say? Of all uh, uh, home improvement projects, the most bang for your buck is fresh paint. There is such a sense of uh, satisfaction and fulfillment at the end of a project like that. And that's a foretaste of the garden that we are going back to. In the garden, there will be perfect friendship, perfect creativity, perfect industry, perfect fruitfulness, no more disappointments, and day after day, a, a constant job well done. The rest of the Bible, as we go on, will tell us how it's possible for you and me to get back to the garden. And I'll give you a hint. It's through our Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us, and the one whom we will meet now here at the supper. Father in heaven, thank you for your glorious word. Thank you for the book of Genesis and how in writing it, you give us an overarching story from which we can reorient our lives through. Help us, Lord, to do all that we do to the praise and honor of your glory. And God's people said, amen.